jotted in my journal really quickly what had happened through the week. And the week started with a phone call about one of the boys that we work with in uh, this vulnerable space in Cincinnati in a, in a partnership organization who had been shot. And so he, and we were thinking, like, it's, is it just random? No, it was a gang that had gone looking for him and found him and shot him and some other stuff hit his friends. And that first day of the week, I'm, at, I'm on the phone with one of our coaches saying, you should probably go see him. And he's saying, are you sure? And I'm in translating and I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't we want to help? And he's like, do you, like, will they know that I'm coming? Because if I get out of my car and they don't know me, they could interpret that I'm the guy that's coming to finish the job. I'm like, oh, oh, not, yeah, let's call and let's make sure. And just the weight of that, that that was a conversation that I had Monday. The, the weight of that was just heavy for me of thinking, these are the conversations that we're having. And then that follow-up conversation with our, our, our young friend in the difference between him seeing the brevity of his life and a badge of honor of, oh, now I've been shot, so now I belong in my community. As we walk past, on a set of stairs, past his uncle who had just finished a 20-year sentence and had been out for 30 days, the weight was just a little heavy. And then the second phone call was from a mom of my friend Omarion, and Omarion and I have been working on some stuff for the last several months, and last month in September, he actually got Student of the Month, and on the, the Student of the Month award, it said, for academic and behavior, and we're like, yeah, oh, that's a win, and she called and said, hey, oh, got picked up this weekend for boosting a car, yeah, that was Monday, by Tuesday, I'm in a conversation with Omarion's mom, and six of us should be in this team meeting around him and what's going on, but only one other social worker and I show up. So the community that should be there isn't there. And that was a little heavy. By Wednesday, I'm standing in the rain. I don't know if it rained where you were, but we have a big banquety type thing coming up for our organization. And part of this idea around the banquet was we should have a fire, and we want Chris to light the fire, and you're going to strike a match in this field and then this big bonfire is going to happen and there was diesel fuel involved and all of these things and there were like eight cameras set up around this big fire I mean like cameras that are worth more than my home once you piece them all together like really expensive cameras and this was the only night we could get the shot and as we're getting ready to have sundown shot epic into the movie the heavens open and rain is pouring down and all of the non-camera shooters are holding umbrellas over the camera looking at radar saying, should we make it? Meanwhile, Chris is in the rain with the matches because they were like, we'll just shoot it just in case and I'm striking matches in rain. They gave up on the matches and then they gave me a propane torch. <laughs> like, yeah, now we're talking. That wouldn't even light it. Like, I mean, the rain is just coming down so hard. So it's 10 o'clock when we're getting home on Wednesday night. Sarah's on the phone. I'm like, we're, babe, we're coming home. We're drenched. She's like, how was the shoot? It didn't happen. She's like, great. So you're out late, long day, and you didn't even get the, the fire lit. I'm like, no. And we're not even going to, like, second shoot it. Like, it's just over. It was just a miserable, wet, soaked, non-fire night. Then Thursday. 
Thursday's going okay until I get home from work and we grab the mail and we're on our way down to a practice for my daughter at the ballet and we open a passport for my oldest daughter, Sunny, that we're getting so that she can go to Mexico with me. Great trip. We look. Information's wrong. Now we're on the phone with the government. Those are fun conversations. And they're like, the only thing you can do is drive to a regional office in Chicago or Detroit. And we're looking at our calendar between now and the time that we leave. And we're like, the only day we can do this is tomorrow. We're on our way. What do we have to bring? Well, you need to bring the birth certificate. Well, you have the birth certificate because you used it for the passport. They're like, yes, we mail those back separately. It should be back to your house within two weeks. So down to Cincinnati we go to grab a birth certificate so that we can go up to Chicago on Friday. Just kind of an exhausting week. Right, so Saturday happens and I'm looking at it. We did get the password, by the way even though they almost messed up the birth date again while we were standing in line. And we get home, and as I'm thinking through this series and our conversations around Jesus and, and where we've been in conversations around Jesus and women and Jesus and hospitality, and I'm just feeling tired, and I'm looking at my week, and I'm thinking, well, no wonder you're tired. Like, all of these things happen, and you've driven thousands of miles all over the place, and you have young men who are in tra- tragic experiences in their life and their parents are a mess and there's just all this stuff happening so no wonder but it wasn't that story that was actually lingering for me you see on Tuesday while we're in the middle of all these other things my daughter went to watch her friend Kaylin play soccer and as she gets to the game and she goes in and she sits down with our friends the cars there's another couple that are there and the husband looks at my daughter and introduces himself and says, hey, I know your dad. And when that happens, I have no idea how this conversation is going to go. There, I have some things that have happened, some stories. We'll get there someday. And college was a space for me that was interesting. Things were changing for me. I was at a Bible college. I wanted to go into ministry. But there was a lot of stuff that I was figuring out. And so this guy looks at my daughter and says, I know your dad. And Sonny comes home that night and says, Dad, I met someone who knows you. Which isn't really that surprising because I've been in Cincinnati for a long time and went to a college here. Like, we know people. And she said, he went to school with you. And he started to tell me this story. He said, the one story that I remember about your dad. And I was like, hey, is that, is that, did you meet Justin? She was like, yes, that was his name. So 20 years ago, I ran this indoor soccer league for Cincinnati Christian University. And each Thursday, Wednesday and Thursday night, we would get tons of students, whether they played soccer together or not, in like actual teams. And we would get together and we would just go play. And we had a league. And this guy, Justin, and his friend, Casey, they didn't play. They had a different game that they liked to play. It's called heckling. They were extremely skilled at it. And they had a group of friends that it was kind of their love language. That they would make fun of them and then from the pitch the other guys would make fun of them back and no one took it personal. Except on this one specific night where my mom decided to come and watch the league that her son was running. And she was sitting right in front of Justin. And Casey. And they were heckling just the, as badly as they could. A friend of theirs who was on my team, his name's Nate, 
And they were making fun of Nate so badly that my mom turns around to them, not understanding the context of like college kids just being at their space. And she looks and she says, you would expect at a Christian university that there would be different words that you would say to each other. I don't know if you've ever been labeled before. I don't know if you've ever been put in a box where you were like, I hate it when people do that to me. But at Cincinnati Bible College, and Seth even alluded to this last week, we kind of hate to be put into a box. Like when people put rules on us and say, because you're at a Christian college, you have to be in bed by 11. We're like, I've never had to be in bed by 11. Why are you making me go to bed by 11 in the name of Jesus? Like, I don't understand. Back then, a few years ago, you weren't allowed to have VCRs in your dorm rooms at Cincinnati Bible College because you might watch the wrong thing, even though everyone was just addicted to Veggie Tales then. So it's like just keeping us from Bob and Larry. And so my mom hit this button with Justin in the moment that was like, because you're at a Christian university, there's this expectation on you and you're stamped and you're labeled. And her perception of what should be happening at this college was that there should just be encouragement and love and compassion and grace. And I'm like, have you met college guys? Like, we just don't do any of that until there's a really cute girl around. Then we do all of that. And then she leaves and we go back to our horrible state of mind. And so Justin fires back at her. I'm warming up, I look over at the bench, and I see my mom and my sister, who's a high school senior at the time, in a verbal altercation with two of my classmates. And so I do what any sane, patient, normal guy would do. I jump the wall and get in Justin's face. And I'm ready to just go. That's my mom. That's my sister. They were probably wrong because I know what they would probably say in this context, but I have to protect them anyway. And so we're ready to fight. I'm in charge of the league, so I get to win and kick them out. I kick the two guys out. I go back onto the pitch. I play. There's angst. There's anger. There's aggression. And 20 years later, it's the one story that Justin wants to tell my daughter when he sees her in some stands at a soccer game. I don't know that it matters that later that night, Justin and I had gotten on the phone and reconciled that relationship. Like, he called me and said, dude, that was your mom. I was like, yes, sir. It was. I'm on my way up to your floor to kill you right now. And he was like, I had no idea. Should it have mattered? Should it have mattered whose mom it was? Probably not. And we talked through it, and we figured it out. And I talked to my mom and my sister, and we figured it out. But what was interesting and what lingered with me for this week is that wasn't the first time that Justin's told that story. He used to own a coffee shop here in Cincinnati and I would walk in for a meeting with other businessmen and women and they would go, you're here to meet with Chris? Oh yeah, let me tell you this story about how I got in a fight with his mom. I'm like, I'm not sure that you want to lead with that, my man. Like, that's weird. But what was most overwhelming this week to me before I went into like, this study was what was still unsettled for me in this story? Because when my daughter started it, I was like, oh, no. Who are you going to think I am after you hear this? What's this going to change about us 
what's this going to change about our family? What's this change about our perception of who we are and how we function together? Do I have to go beat him up again? Like, no. Like, all of this, but this emotion. And it wasn't actually, it wasn't about Justin in that moment for me. It was actually about, why did you have to be that guy, Chris, that would pick a fight instead of bringing peace? Because of my perception of Justin, my perception of family, my perception of the world, something had happened. And my response to a moment was to engage in a fight. And hearing it back again, I was still overwhelmed by it. Today we're just going to talk a few minutes about Jesus and perception. Because who we perceive to be ourselves, who we perceive others to be, and how we perceive Jesus to exist in the context of this world is really, really important. Because 20 years later, it can still influence how someone sees you, sees your family, and most importantly, sees Jesus and his kingdom. Because my mom was sitting in the bleachers and said, you're a Christian, are you really supposed to act like that? And it lit a firestorm of response. Jesus was in a situation kind of like that. If you have a Bible, you can look at Matthew chapter 5. If you have the Bible in front of you, it's, we're going to dabble into page 683 and then dive into page 684. Matthew chapter 5 through the end of chapter 7 is this thing that we often call the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with the Beatitudes. It ends with a story that you've, you've probably heard this parable that Jesus tells toward the end of saying, if you've listened to anything that I say and you put it into practice, you are like a person who looks at solid ground and builds their house on solid ground so that when the storm comes, the house will still stand. But if you don't listen to anything I say in Matthew's chapter 5 through chapter 7, if you don't listen to these instructions that I give you, then you're like the person who builds their house just on the edge of the tide on the beach with no foundation. And the waves come and the rain comes and it knocks your house down. So his warning at the end is, if you haven't listened to anything that I've said in this space, your faith will not last your belief system will be torn down. Your behavior will exude the person who's lost everything. But if you'll listen to this, your belief system will be foundational. It will be firm. And that people can dwell in this space with you. That's how he ends the whole thing. But in the middle, Jesus gets after it with the people that are around him. In Matthew 5.17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so he has this crowd around him of Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders, other rabbis that are around, and he says, Don't worry, I'm not here to tell you something different. I'm here to fulfill everything that's been told to you. But... In order for me to fulfill everything that's been spoken to you, I'm going to have to change your perception of what's been spoken to you because you're doing it wrong. And that leads us to where I want to just spend a few minutes in this one passage in verse 43 of chapter 5 through verse 48. Jesus starts this passage, he says, you have heard it was said. 
And I'm going to pause there. He said, you have heard it was said. And then in a minute, he's going to say, but I say to you. This is actually a a sign to us that this is a a rabbinic idiom that says, we're going to gather and I'm going to teach you the law in which I see the kingdom of God existing. And it was really the job of the rabbi. The rabbi would sit and would have conversations with people and say, you've heard that someone said to you this thing, but I say to you, this is what it actually means. So they would wrestle with the text. They would wrestle with Old Testament law. They would wrestle with what you can do in the camp, what you can't do in the camp, what you should do at the temple, what you shouldn't. So any rabbi would be used to using this term, and in Hebrew it was called amar, and it was A-M-A-R, and it would be this, you have heard it said, but I say to you, I'm about to give you my teaching. I'm going to give you my interpretation. And he says in verse 43, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Immediate problem. Any rabbi in the space, any Sadducee, any Pharisee would look and say, yes, we all agree with that. We've heard that. We've been teaching that. You're talking about the Shema. You're talking about Deuteronomy chapter 6. You're talking about Deuteronomy chapter 18. You're talking about all of these different statements that say to love your neighbor. You're talking about the ending of this. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second part of it, that you would write this on your doorpost, that you would enter in, and then the next part is that you would offer this to your neighbor, that you would give this to those who are around you. This is us, Jesus. You're telling us like our bread and butter. And you're saying that we did it wrong. But what's interesting is that in the Torah, in the Old Testament, there is no place where God ever says, hate your enemy. He never makes that statement. He never comes out and says that you should love your neighbor and you should hate your enemy. So Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And immediately, the religious leaders in the space are saying, what are you saying? And he's saying, because of all of this conversation around this, because of the political environment around Israel, because of the perception that you have about how God is for you and against others, about all of these things, you've created a new law. And it says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And I am here to tell you that you've heard it said that you can love some people and hate other people and that I'm okay with that. But I am here to tell you that I am not okay with that. And the audience would be listening. If you try to find where the statement actually came from, it would actually be from the Essenes, this monastic group of Jews that would search to find this piety, this holiness. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we probably have because the Essenes kept it for us and they protected it and made it happen, that there's a statement in there that they said, that they wrote, and that Josephus references later, he says, that the Essenes would say, fight forever the unjust and fight together with the just. And so their actual statement, they would pray that prayer twice a day, that we would fight against injustice and that we would fight for justice. And that this statement of love your neighbor and hate your enemy actually came from these religious leaders who were saying we are called because God says that anyone in sin is his enemy, we are called to hate the enemy of God. And Jesus would say, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus begins to break down the perception that we would live in this discernment that would say, well, I know who I should love and who I should encourage. I should love and encourage those who are interested and who want something to do with God. And instead, Jesus responds and says, no, you should love and you should know and you should connect with anyone because they're human. Because the sun comes up and it goes down on the good and the evil. Because the world is the world and because you're guilty too. But Jesus doesn't just say that you should love equally. He actually gives us a a small plan in in these verses of how to pursue love for both our neighbor and our enemy. And he starts first in that verse that I just read by he, he changes the perception by moving us to greater righteousness. You see, the law at the time would be this pursuit of what is acceptable, what is okay not what is actually transformative. If I love my neighbor, will I do enough to get into heaven? And Jesus would say, that's the wrong question. If you don't love your enemy, how will they know what heaven could be like? Is the question. How do I pursue a greater righteousness that overcomes the angst and the the pain and the enemy And what they're bringing to me so that I can offer a righteousness through the pain that I'm experiencing, through the agony, through the oppression. Because my enemy will not know anything but hatred and pain and angst unless someone rises above and shows them the grace and mercy and love that is Jesus. So he's saying you rise above it and offer a greater righteousness pursuing righteousness as a believer would be to say I'm not only called to love the people that are easy I'm called to figure out how to love the people that are hard a few years ago my friend Joe invited me to go to a mosque with him it was a Thursday morning and as we were entering in we had just heard that there was another um, domestic terrorist attack and that all Muslims were being blamed again. So Joe had called me and said, you want to go to a mosque with me today? And whenever Joe calls, I usually say yes because our adventures are amazing. And I said, a mosque, yes. Why are we going? He said, well, there was a bombing today and I'm pretty sure that everyone now believes that every Muslim is here to hurt us here to kill us and here to take us away from God and he went through all of this list and I said that's an interesting take what do you want to do there he's like well I want to sit I want to pray I want to listen to the teaching of the imam and then afterward I would like to go up to him and say we represent Jesus and we want you to know that we're thankful for you we're thankful for this house of peace we're thankful that you're a citizen in this city And we're sorry that you're being blamed for everything right now. And I said, that's cool. They let us? He's like, I don't know. Let's try it. So off to a mosque we go. 
the imam steps up to teach, and as the imam is teaching his lesson, he says, I have read the Quran, and the Quran would say that an eye for an eye is good, and so if there is oppression upon us, then we are willing and, and okay to give that same oppression in equal form back. So what he was saying is, men, I know in this space that you are angry and you are frustrated that we have been accused of it all being our fault. He said, we would be okay with Allah if we were to say, whatever you give to us, we are going to give back to you in an equal portion. But he said, and then this was what blew my mind. He said, but I've also been reading the teachings of this man, Jesus. And Jesus says that it is okay for an eye for an eye, but it is great love when you love your enemy. And I tend to agree with him. He said that from a, like a, this in a mosque. And he said, and the more that I read the Quran, the more that I believe that Allah would agree. That we could retaliate equally, or we could love our enemy. You don't know what you don't know. It's what I walked away from that mosque remembering. I don't know what's being taught in here. I don't know what's being taught over there. I don't know until I put myself present and pursue a greater righteousness that said, and yes, even you, and yes, even in this moment, and yes, even if everyone else calls you enemy, God calls you his child. And I remember that moment thinking, if I had not walked into this mosque, I would have written a different narrative for the men and women who are worshiping here today. Because my perception was fueled by a different belief system. It takes us pursuing a greater righteousness than any political gain, any oppression, any victimization, any abandonment. It's going to take us pursuing a greater righteousness in order to know the God that pursues us as we love a friend and an enemy. Jesus also offers an equal grace when he says, in that passage, that he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteousness and the unrighteous. Do you, you, do I, offer equal grace to my friends as I would offer to my enemies? Here's how you answer that question. Has anyone in your life offended you? And have you offered them grace and reconciliation? Or have you offered them judgment but begged God for grace for yourself when you were the offender? Unequal grace creates an enemy construct. Equal grace removes the enemy construct because we all need it and none of us deserve it. And then last in the verses he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? He invites us to be selfless. Because in those moments, when it's easy to love those who are easy to love, 
Jesus is inviting us to selflessness, to find the depth of a greeting that would welcome everyone. And the word he uses here for greeting is not just a, hi, how are you? But it's a, I welcome you in with an embrace, with a brotherly kiss, with a, it's safe here, with a presence. So here's the challenge that I had in even just reading that of who is it tough for me to greet right now? Who is struggling to welcome my embrace? Who is it that I just pull the hand back a little bit when we greet? Who is it that would feel like work if we were to have them over? Am I willing to rise above Whatever it is that struggles in reconciliation in order to offer the embrace so that the grace of God can be offered equally. Then Jesus finishes with this passage. He He says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. And I'll close by telling you this. I do not like it when the Bible has words like perfect. Because I don't like to lose. I don't like to fail. I don't like to underachieve. And so I see words that say, be perfect, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Another reminder that after almost 40 years on this earth, I still cannot do enough. I'm still challenged by these things, and that, but your expectation is perfection. And so when there's a word perfect, I always look into it to see, does he really mean perfect? Because if he does, he and I are kind of not friends right now, because it, it burdens me. And in response to that, he opened his scripture to me and he showed me his word and it said, I don't mean perfect, I mean mature. And then when I looked at the word for mature that he was using in this, it actually said all the way to the end. And so what what Jesus is really saying is, take this love for your enemies until it's fully complete. Don't stop until there's completeness, just as your father won't stop. Until there is completeness. That's different. So continue pursuing love for your neighbor and your enemy until there is completeness. My daughter brings up this story that happened 20 years ago. What's interesting is is that anger thing for me, that enemy thing, it wasn't just from Justin. I don't know if you've ever been for working for an organization where you have to take all of these like personality tests, but it seems like I'm always taking some type of personality test, from a disc profile to an Enneagram to a Taylor Johnson or a Myers-Briggs, like all of these, I have numbers and colors and letters in my life that show me who I am, but through all of them, there was this constant theme that landed in this last test that I took called this Taylor Johnson thing, which you're only supposed to be like a professional psychologist to assess those. And all of us in our organization got one, and the one thing that stood out was anger for me. Like, it was like really high. And so I went to the, the pastor of our team, his name's David, and I went over to David and I said, is that like a problem because gotten fights in the past, and I broke a guy's ankle on a soccer field on purpose, and then I had this Justin thing, like I, and he was like, would you like to talk? <laughs> no, but yes. So he sit down and he looks at me and he says, the, when's the first time that you remember 
getting angry, like feeling overwhelmed with anger. And I took him to a place that was second grade for me. He was on a bus. Fifth grader decided that he was going to beat me up on the bus that day, and he did. Turned me upside down. Pile drive me, drove me into the, the aisle. Bus driver didn't stop it. And I remember in my mind, my, my perception of my belief system while I was getting turned upside down and driven into the ground was, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. I'm a good Christian boy. I should just take this beating. And I got home. My sister ran inside and she told my parents what had happened and my parents wanted to go kill the other parents, but they didn't talk to me. My dad called the principal, but he didn't talk to me. The next morning, I went in and I got called to the office. And in the office, the principal verbally accosted the boy who had beaten me up, but he didn't talk to me. And he looked at me and said, don't worry, this will never happen to you again. And it was Kentucky, and it was a long time ago. And so he pulled this paddle out and was getting ready to beat that kid. And he dismissed me from the room like, I'll take care of it. You're protected here. And I left feeling the most shame I had ever felt in my life. And I remember walking down that hallway back to my second grade classroom, making a promise to myself. No one will ever victimize you again. You will never feel this shame. Everyone thinks you're weak. That's why they're protecting you so you can be strong. So I became the most sarcastic, protected punk you could meet. And I got in fights and I put guys into cars and I did, did a lot of things. And I ended up in this kid's face at a soccer game. And I'd worked on it for years and then this little, this little test came out. And David looked at me and he said, do you remember the first time that you were angry? And I walked him through that moment and I verbalized. I had never told that story. I didn't even remember that that story was there. I had no idea that my enemy was actually the shame I'd been carrying from being victimized as a second grader, not all of these people that I'd picked fights with. And I looked at David and said, huh. And he said, how you feel? I was like, Good. Are you angry? No. And he looked and he said, you know what? Behavior is a response to a belief system. And on that morning, your belief system changed. And God's been graciously walking you through your behavior until you got to this point so that he could remind you. You're strong enough for him. You don't have to carry any guilt. You don't have to defend him. You don't have to fix this story. Your enemy isn't who you think it is. There's something else going on. Take it to completion. Don't stop early. Because there's probably some David out there who just wants to listen to your story. And say, when was the first time that someone made you feel that way? Because we can be a church that changes its belief system. So that we can love our neighbor. And love our enemy. And we can be perfect as he is perfect. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the redeeming love that you give us.
Because we have heard it said that we're not enough. We have heard it said that there are those who are against us. We have heard it said that we should protect you and your story. But you say that you let it rain on all of us. You shine the sun on all of us. You have enough grace for all of us. You can redeem all of us. Give us the courage to reconcile in your name. Give us the strength to pursue greater righteousness. And give us the compassion to offer equal grace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.